Hi, I'm Leah Potter. And I'm Meredith Roten, and we're two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Meredith, you had a story this week, again looking at GW's alumni and how they kind of had a recent rebranding moment. The organization formerly known as the GW Alumni Association, they recently had their ties with the university cut off. So that was a couple of weeks ago, the university said they didn't want to be partnered uh, with the GWAA anymore and are creating a, a new in-house alumni association. And so in response to that, the organization has voted to change their name because they don't have access to the GW trademark anymore, but then also completely uh, restructure and reorganize the way that they are going to be doing things in the next couple of months. The new name of the association is the Independent Alumni Association of George Washington. And I spoke with the president of this organization, Martin Baum, who said that even though the university has said they don't want anything to do with this organization, they're still going to support it because they still feel like it's their duty to contribute to alumni and give back in whatever way they can. I mean, we're volunteers, you know, people have, you know, other jobs, family obligations, other uh, nonprofit obligations, and we're still here because of why we were here in the first place, really, which is because we're committed, we're lifelong GW supporters, and we feel we have important um, things to share, not only money, but our experience, our perspective, uh, networking, what have you, and that, that that hasn't changed. They have funding, they have money that they have built up over the years. They just have to decide how they're going to use that and how they're going to structure that program. They previously have been a part of the alumni awards process. They are not part of the GW-sponsored ones, uh, alumni awards this year and they're going to figure out how to restructure that. So that's that's something that's going to be a discussion point at the next board meeting, which is October 26th. How long will this restructuring process take? When, when I spoke to uh, Baum, he said that basically they don't know right now. They're, he's expecting to be have something structured by the end of the year, maybe you know around the first of the year. That's when they're going to have like something in mind and they're going to be working over the next few months to come up with that, but that's just kind of a goal for them to have that done by. And what are the major benefits to being separate then from the university? The organization has always been technically independent, but now that they are completely independent, they have this kind of chance to start all over again, to like completely tear everything down. And he said that it's those kinds of moments that can you know really make or break an organization it can really lead them to do things better than before and then what are the drawbacks then to being independent from gw well obviously they don't have the same resources that they used to because though they do have their own endowment they don't have the university staff they're only a volunteer organization so they only have a limited amount of time Uh, and they don't have like the university's financial resources or Um, they don't have access to alumni in the same way that the university does. Thanks for keeping us updated, as always, about what's happening with alumni here. Yeah, it should be an interesting story to watch for the next couple of months.
Leah, you have a story this week about a professor in the nursing school who is working on an online resource for other nursing faculty. Yeah, Ashley Darcy Mahoney. She is a neonatal nurse practitioner, but also a nursing professor here at GW. And she's working to compile a bunch of different online resources for this toolkit, which is more or less kind of making a place online for both online modules, case studies, different types of information that could help nursing faculty better teach pediatric nursing to students. And why is this such a big topic in nursing that she needs to make online resources? Ashley said that her main focus here is looking at environmental factors that can affect children between the time they're born up until maybe around age three that can have a larger impact on how receptive they are to getting diseases later on in life and just in general their overall health as they age and become later a teenager. She's looking at areas including a child's socioeconomic status, what food they're getting, and even just general childhood experiences. So depending on their socialization as a child or maybe what neighborhood they were living in, all of these factors she's hoping to show how they will impact a child's future health. And is she working with anyone or is she just kind of going by herself? She's working with other nurses who also specialize in pediatric care, um, also others who are involved in nursing education. This also falls under the work of the National League of Nursing. And so this is specifically under one of their initiatives, which is Advancing Care Excellence Pediatrics. And that's really to bolster education and research in pediatric nursing. And how does this information benefit future nurses? She said this information will ideally help nurses treat children in respect to nutrition, um, children who are dealing with obesity, oral health, um, different types of preventative care, um, getting vaccines, also mental health. And then she also says this could look at autism in children as well. Why was she motivated to create these resources? Well, one of the main contributing factors to compiling all of these resources was current nursing textbooks don't actually include all this information. And so she wanted to create something that's both accessible, so being online, but also free so that all nursing faculty can have access to this and hopefully improve their courses to include information that they can't just get out of a book. Thanks for giving us an update on research in the nursing school. Yeah, always happy to chat. I'm here with our student life editor, Sarah Roach, who's here to tell us about a new rare space for students on campus. Yeah, this is a space for any student with like any religious background who can come and take a mat um, and pray or meditate in whatever fashion they like. So seven faith-based student groups basically came together um, over the spring and they were in conversations about like forming this space where they can all just be in like one location and, and have an actual like area where they are able to pray without being in their dorm or like having the distractions of like their roommates and whatnot. Um, and a lot of faith-based student groups said that that wasn't really an option for them other than like praying in their room unless you were, you know, in GW Catholics or in Hillel or Chabad. So this space is um, on the third floor of the Multicultural Student Services Center and students can go up to the room. They can flip a sign on the door if they don't want anyone disturbing them when they're praying. Um, but this is really just a space for faith-based student groups to just come together and be able to pray. 
and what sorts of things will be included in this space. The room has a few decals um, on the wall. So there's a decal of a waterfall and then each student org chose a quote um, that was like related to their religion. There's also um, a marker on the wall that indicates where Mecca is so that if a student is Muslim and they're praying in the direction of Mecca, they won't have to like figure that out themselves. There are also bookshelves. So each religion has their own bookshelf of like textbooks or like prayer books that they can use and there is like a bookshelf designated to each religion. And why was this an important space for students to have on campus? Student leaders from the Hindu Students Association actually had originally had this idea for I believe the past couple years there have been a few student leaders in uh, the Hindu Students Association who were sort of in discussion about this but they never really formally proposed anything to officials until January um, and then they went to the MSSC they brought it up to Michael Tapscott who's the director of the MSSC and and were in conversations throughout the spring semester and that's when they brought in other student groups because they figured well this is something that you know other student groups could benefit from because the reason the HSA wanted it was because they didn't have a space in DC where they could go to, never mind campus. Um, so they have they would have to go to like Maryland or Virginia if they wanted a place of worship. And they figured, you know, it would be easier if there was something here. Student leaders were saying, you know, students of different religious backgrounds are sort of the minority on campus. It's not really talked like racial um, diversity, ethnic diversity is something that's more more of a prominent conversation on campus, but not really religious diversity. So student leaders thought that this was going to sort of move the university toward being more aware and inclusive of students of different religious backgrounds and include that in the, the uh, conversations about diversity and inclusion. Thanks for coming on, Sarah, and telling us more about this student prayer space. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm here with Margot, and we're here to talk about a group of dancers who worked on their solo exhibition, which premiered on Friday. Thanks yes. for coming on. Yeah, they um, performed at the Corcoran Rotunda Friday evening, and it was five students giving five solo performances that they composed with the help of Professor Maida Withers and the group themselves of five students. As I said, they each tell a different story that kind of comes directly from their life and through the through the teaching style of Maida Withers they kind of explored some unconventional dance stylings. When you say unconventional what do you mean by that? People have said that Maida and Maida herself has said that she maybe has a style of giving feedback and working through a performance with dancers that some students might be turned off by in terms of style and genre she kind of goes more through like feeling and telling a story um she in working through projects will ask students like give me like the emotion that you felt on this kind of day like what was the greatest feeling that came from this and so when students like berkeley lane who is the soloist when she thinks of composing a story or composing a dance through storytelling she thinks of Maida. berkeley's had a class with her for the last uh, couple semesters each year and she's a junior and she says that even though she's been dancing since she was two years old, she has never like felt love for dance and passion for dance as much as she has since joining the GW dance program. That's a testament to the work Maida has done within the program since she joined in 1965. Through Maida's, you know, help being a t the, one of the first tenured dance professors at the university, she was kind of able to make the program what it is today on top of having her own dance company and producing works with 
people in Ukraine, Japan, like these kinds of historic careers and doing her own dancing as well. I'm really interested in engaging students in their creative process. I don't want them to look and act like me. I want them to find out who they are and what work they can make. Could you tell me more about Mina's teaching experience and how she became involved working with students? Well, she also has had years and years teaching too, because she may have started dancing at in the fourth grade, but she actually started teaching students, children at age 12. Were there any particularly interesting anecdotes from students? From the same student, Berkeley Lane, she took an improvisation class with Maida and said one of her favorite performances that she ever did was Maida took the class to the Lincoln Memorial and they were able to just kind of dance on the steps. They were, you know, dancing for just tourists. They did, it was like a very impromptu flash mobby kind of thing. And they've also done similar things at uh, Kogan Plaza. They were saying they were kind of embarrassed to be around students, but then Maida herself was kind of rolling through Kogan Plaza right by the sculptures. Well, thanks for coming on and telling us about this recent dance performance and a very interesting professor in the dance department. Yeah, hopefully she has many years of the program to come. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editor Margot Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Sarah Roach for joining us. See you next week.